Today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about the right to work. Do human beings, by virtue of what they are, have a right to a job, to demand employment from employers? What role does the Christian conscience play through natural law in ensuring that free markets don't become abusive? And finally, how did communism remove the worker's right to work, and what does that implication mean for us today? You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. Join us as we explore the depths of theology, philosophy, and the Christian intellectual life. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast, a place for thinkers. I am your host, Daniel Roberts. Thank you for joining us on this cool evening in the Carolinas. If you've been following along in this podcast, you know that on our site, solomonscorner.com, we have been going through a book called The Rights of Man and Natural Law and Christianity and Democracy, and some of the content today has been pulled from that book. And a concept that doesn't come up very often in the discussion about workers' rights, which they they obviously have some, but it's rarely discussed the rights of the employer. Now, before we can dive into this, we have to understand a little bit of the background of what is a right and where does it come from at all. And this has to come from some source outside of the state. The state can't just give you rights. You have them whether the state gives them to you or not. And so there has to be a standard outside of the state where we compare these rights. And this is by virtue of you being a man. For example, you have the right to a trial. We don't give the same right to a dog because he's not a human being. He's not a political animal, so to speak, as Aristotle would say. So It's with this in mind that we come to an idea of a Christian conscience, this idea that there is another law, a divine law, that calls men to serve God rather than men. But if God created human nature, and if he also gives authority to the state, then they both have to be accountable to him. And so on the one hand, man is accountable to his nature as such. He has to do things that are in alignment with his nature. He can't just go out and abuse small puppies and say that he's done a moral good. On the flip side, he also has to serve God and he has to pursue God. Likewise, the state cannot force a man to go and abuse small puppies and call it good, nor can he get in the way of man's free pursuit of God. So he can't force man to pursue God either. And so it's in this context that we come to the question of what is the rights of the worker? Does a worker actually have the right to work? Does he have the right to demand a job from his state or from an employer? This is a question that comes up in Maritan's book, The Rights of Man and the Natural Law, and I definitely disagree with him on this, just full disclosure. But we have to get to this point of a question of the right to work, and the right to work I do think exists, but not in the way that Maritan describes it, or not in the way that today many people uh, argue for the right to work. We're not social democrats. So one of the problems is that 
in the discussion around the rights to work, there's an implicit dehumanization of the employers. And so there's never a conversation about what are the rights of the employer and what is the worker not entitled to because he's ultimately coveting or ultimately demanding something from another human being who has exercised his his freedom to acquire property, the means production, and is ultimately trying to do work and maximize product. And so when we come to this discussion in Maritan, he is merely focused only on the worker. And he argues that there should be this kind of uh, association or the stakeholder mentality that when you go to work for an employee or, or an employer, you should have a stake in the company just de facto, that your worker's title is what he calls it, that you have a right to be employed. This, I think, is fundamentally off base because it's not like jobs are just out there being prevented from being had by a worker. It's not like the government has set up these legal blockades, for example, based on race or religion, to prevent you from having a job. In fact, we have explicit protections of uh, employers not able to discriminate on the basis of those characteristics. And so the question becomes, what is a right to work? And I would make it this distinction. You have the right to work, but you don't have the right to a job. You can always go out and start a business. You can do that in a lawful and and civic way. You could go about starting a business and making sure that you're furthering the good of the community. You don't have to be employed by somebody. Now, there could be an argument to be said that your state makes it too difficult for you to start jobs, in which case your rights are being infringed upon. If it's too difficult for you to start your own work, to gain your own capital without being employed, then there is a problem within the system that is needs to be reformed politically. But we shouldn't operate from the standpoint that if you have the right to work, therefore you also have the right to demand a job from an employer. Because the employer also has a job to do as well. Before I started recording this podcast, a friend of mine told me about how his family had owned a cardboard box company that they had owned through generation to generation. And they saw themselves as having an obligation to care for the employees who had families and who needed the job in order to provide for those families. And so the employer had an immense burden on himself because if he mismanaged the company, 80 families would end up without a job and they'd have to go find something else. They might have to move. They might not be able to find another job. And so the employer not only has just more risk involved, he also carries much more of an emotional burden if he fails his employees. And so it's a little bit absurd for people like Maritan or even some of the social justice warriors of today and some of our pastors to condescend business and to condescend employers when they should actually be recognizing employers, especially Christian employers who are trying to do it right, as morally upstanding people. It is hard work to start a job. It's hard work to go out and do it right and not cheat people out and and cut corners. And so when you see people trying to live out the Christian life within the free market, there's definitely a necessary support that virtuous people should extend to them. But there's 
in my experience in the church and just in Christian culture in general, and I don't know that I would say that this comes directly from pastors or anything like that, but, well, some for sure. But the idea is, is that there's two things that you just can't be if you're a Christian, even though everybody knows that we have to have them. One is a politician and the other is a business owner. Both of those are seen as vicious occupations, and rarely do you ever hear somebody say from the pulpit, maybe God's calling you to go and start your own business to make a difference in the world, to be a light in the secular space of what it looks like to lead a godly business while meeting the secular needs or the material needs of the unsaved or the, or the unbelievers or just your neighbor. So why is Maritan even arguing this way? Well, I don't know this for sure, but one can see from the historical context that in 1940s, and Maritan talks about this, that fascism in Nazi Germany and communism in Russia are on the rise, and they're both moving rapidly towards totalitarian states. And when he writes this, it is in this context that we find these political ideas have reached their peak. They are actively oppressing groups of people. And specifically in the communist regimes, Solzhenitsyn in Gulag Archipelago Volume 2 records the idea of why people would go into the labor camps willfully. And this is what he says. When when people went into the Gulag the first time, they would get there on trumped-up charges and they would have to confess that they had committed these crimes and then they'd be thrown in the labor camp for 15 years or 25 years. And one of the things that happens in this uh, in this environment is that w- some people would survive the labor camps and they would be allowed out. And when they were allowed out of the of the labor camps, they couldn't get a job. And the reason why they could not get jobs is because their papers would be marked with them having actually been in the labor camps. And so people would see them as a pariah, or they'd see them as this unclean person. And so you couldn't actually get a job. You'd lost your right to work. And so ironically, communism, which was supposed to come in and represent the working class, oftentimes ended up eliminating the very right that they claimed human beings had by virtue of being a human being. And so these guys would willfully go back into the gulag, into the labor camp, and try and become a shock worker in order that they could get better rations and better food within the labor camp in order to just live out the rest of their existence, because most of them would end up dying once they got back in. So to be fair to Maritan, I think that there might be some level at which he looks at this and he says, there are groups that are taking away the right to work. If you're a Jew in Nazi Germany, you're losing your right to work. If you're a communist, you're creating a culture in which people are losing their right to work because they're political enemies. And so I think it's from this point that he is trying to operate and say, we have to try and protect this because it gets really, really bad and can be a stepping stone to fascism or communism if people start losing their right to work. The problem is, is that when people hear the words right to work, they think that this is the right to a job from an employer, but that's not what it is. And so in order to get around this, we have to take Maritan's own principle of the human dignity of being a person who has the right to pursue God freely, 
has the right to attain private property, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, all those rights that you always hear about. Those have to also apply to the employer. And so, for example, if I were to try and take Solomon's Corner to the next level, if I were to try and do this, and I would need to take out a business loan. And in order to do that, I would have to incur some risk. And one might ask, well, why would you take out a business loan? Well, I need more help. I need some web developers. I need some people who are graphic designers. I need somebody to, you know, replace my wife. I'm just kidding. But at the end of the day, I need more staff. And so I'd have to take out a loan. Well, who's actually incurring the risk here if Solomon's Corner is actually successful? Well, it would be me, not the employees. If I pay them out of the business loan that I have uh, acquired, then this is going to end up meaning that I they have to work really hard. And if they are lazy or they don't do a good job or I do bad hiring practices and the whole business fails, they may lose their job, but I will be in debt and have to figure out a way to pay it back, not them. So if we want to say that the workers are going to have to have a right to their employment by Solomon's Corner because it's a human right to have a job, we should also say that means that they incur the risk that I do too, and we split up the risk. Now, you might be able to make that case as well, but who's going to enforce that is the problem, and ultimately it would have to be a free decision. And so we come into this question of, so how do we actually protect the right to work? And I think that it stems from not from the state coming in and using economic brute force or mathematical uh, rationing of resources, but I think it comes into this discussion around the Christian conscience. Early on in the in the book, Maritan talks about the Christian conscience and how when Christians are living according to the natural law, the law that supersedes the state, that a kind of rising of all ships occurs in the moral conscience of the city or of the of the people, whether they're Christian or not. And some reformers would call this common grace. There's a lot of technicalities around that. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it that. But the bottom line is that there's a lot of different terms to describe a similar thing when Christians are actively living out their faith in the city. And so Maritan applies this to the state, and he applies this to the individual, but he doesn't apply this to the employer. And I think that if you want to prevent top-down governmental uh, enforcement on employers to have to hire people, or you want to pre- prevent proletariat communist uprisings from the bottom up, what you have to do is you have to embolden Christians to go out and be fruitful and multiply, not in the sense of having children, but in the sense of going and taking the created order that God provided for them and working it to produce more. You might think of the parable of the talents, to go in and actually take the five talents and produce ten talents, and so on and so forth. There needs to be more of a Christian conscience in business in order for the society itself to elevate its conscience. And so when Christian businesses are started, when Christians decide to live according to Paul's words in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3, slaves obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, 
not like those who do their work only when someone is watching, as people-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. And later on, he talks about the fact that masters are supposed to also care for their slaves. So when when Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, talks about slaves and masters, he forces them—well, he doesn't force them, that'd be ironic in this context—he calls them to, instead of being brutal to one or envious of the other, he calls them to look inward as to what their responsibility is to the common good. And this ultimately is love your neighbor as yourself, is what he he implies here. He says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And so, on the one hand, the slave is not to seek the partiality of the master, and the master is not to offer it out. But what happens when Christians decide that, well, this world is just a dumpster fire anyway, and we need Jesus to come back in order to fix it, so... I'm just going to work my uh, 9 to 5 and pad my 401k and not live the adventure of an entrepreneurial life and go and try and make something better for the common good. Well, non-Christians would go and do that. And non-Christians may not have the same respect for God's law that Christians will. And so Paul's charge doesn't necessarily fall to them, but it definitely falls to us Christians to do this. And so, in order for there to be a rising of the ship, so to speak, Maritan talks about the fact that the natural law has to be lived out within the city and within the state, and he even splits this up at the end with the dignity of the human person, the dignity of the civic person, the dignity of the working person. And I don't think that it's appropriate to necessarily consider man as a working person in the sense that He's demanding of a job. But if the goal is for the, the secular conscience to be influenced by the Christian conscience, then in order for Maritan's process to work, in order for societies to attain a higher good, what has to happen is that the Christians need to be active in the domains that God has gifted them to be in, whether that be politics, whether that be the city, or whether that be the church. But one thing is for certain, is that there has been a anti-capitalistic streak within the culture, and Christians are, generally speaking, if they try to start businesses, seen as greedy or seen as uh, not really wanting to serve God, they're seen as serving man rather than God because they, after all, just want to make that money. But in actuality, if we have more Christians in the spaces where the non-Christians are pursuing the goods they don't realize come from God, and Christians can point them to God in that pursuit, then it follows that this secular conscience would rise the rest of the city. And so in order for us to continue 
in the way that Maritan would suggest, or any natural law person, somebody who's desiring of natural law, to understand it and to apply it, is we have to understand that it applies to every aspect of life, and that Christians can be a beacon into that specific area in applying the wisdom that God asks them to seek in order for us to make the difference that we think Christians can make, in order for us to not be nihilistic in our outlook. We have to understand that when it gets hard, we still have to live according to these principles. We do not live according to the principles of natural law or of of the Bible based on the benefit that it affords us. We do it because it's how we were meant to live, and it just happens to be the case that when people live the way they ought to live, that there is fruit that passes down from generation to generation. And one of these key areas in order to live out what Paul says here in Ephesians, and as well as what God says through the voice of Jeremiah in, uh, in the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament of will the good of the city, we have to look at Christians stepping up and stepping out in faith and saying, where can I multiply the good for my city? And so next week, we're going to talk about the natural law and positive law and unjust laws. But for now, I hope that this is giving you something to think about regarding Christian business and maybe an application of natural law in an an arena that you probably haven't thought about very much. And maybe it even has inspired you to think about a business idea that you should go out and try and pursue for the glory of God. I hope that any of those has come true. And if not, I'm just glad that you decided to come this far and hang in there with me on natural law and the right of the worker. I'm Daniel Roberts for Solomon's Corner. Keep thinking.